0: We're going to be continuing our series in the the letter of 1 Peter, and we're already in 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'm going to start reading from verse 7 and read through verse 11. 1 Peter 4, chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand, therefore... Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, many people today, maybe many of you, even this morning, are wondering to themselves, are we in the end times? Is this the last days that we've maybe learned about, have talked about, have read about, have studied before? Are we experiencing the birth pangs that Jesus mentions in the Gospel of Matthew? Could Jesus actually return in our lifetime? Again, many of us have pondered this question maybe a little more passively before, but it seems to be more on the forefronts for many of our, uh, our thoughts and many of our discussions. And I no doubt the book of Revelation has become probably the most popular book to consult as of late. And by the way, if you're wondering, man, Revelation is so difficult to understand, our dear brother, Pastor Emeritus Mike Jones, is teaching on it every single Sunday morning during our equipping hour. And so if you're wondering, how do I understand this? I got no further introduction to going, just show up at 8.45 every Sunday morning, and he is going all the way through it. And go, don't worry, if you're like, I haven't shown up yet, he's only in chapter three. <laughs> so, there's still a lot of chapters left. You uh, you can obviously look back at past notes, all those things are being posted and stuff, but I am, I just heartily encourage you. This would be a great opportunity for you. We are calling it our equipping hour where you just come in and we want to equip you as saints of God so that you might grow in your discipleship and followership of Jesus Christ. And so revelation obviously is a big thing, but the point is people want to know what's going on, right? People want to know what's going on. People want to know how to think Christian or how to think biblically about the current events that are happening in our world today, People want to know uh, how to prepare, right? Now, there's all kinds of uh, approaches or strategies in our preparation, and all you have to do is kind of turn on your favorite news app, and there are certain approaches or strategies. By the way, I say that tongue-in-cheek because perhaps the best thing you can do for yourself is not to take your thumb and clip that news app, because all you're going to receive is a horizontal perspective, one that is void of... Or, devoid of where is God in all of this now i 'm not saying put your head in the sand and be ignorant, but what I am saying is you would do yourself a great favor by first listening to what God says and seeing how scripture defines or describes what you can anticipate, what you can do it 's interesting you know I, I I would say growing up in Alaska, there's a sense of preparedness that we uh, kind of just grow up learning, you know. in Alaska, it was not uncommon every single winter for the lights to go out for days at a time to be snowed in, literally, and not be able to drive out, and you were kind of reliant on uh, pre-planning, you know. Uh, and I grew up in, you know, as George Wood kind of described, a, a nice double-wide trailer, and uh, those are very efficient, by the way. Um <laughs> And so, uh, on, the inside of my, on the inside of my windows was, was ice all winter long, and so it was kind of one of those things that we relied heavily on a lot of wood heat, and, and we relied heavily on pre-planning, like having extra water, having extra food, all those things. All that is really good, right? You kind of need to do that because we don't know, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. You're pretty much stuck and you got to have to weather either the snowstorm or the lights going out until things get turned back on. It just was a normal part of reality. Unfortunately, people can always take things to the extreme, right? And when we hear apocalyptic-type stuff and Hollywood's putting out all kinds of apocalyptic-type narratives out there, we go, what do we got to do? Well, we got to fill our chest freezer with ammo, <laughs> Right? I was literally at Swain's talking to somebody who said their chest, one of their chest was full of ammo. But they also, in the same conversation, said, but we're not going to be around for any of it. So, and I'm like, so who do, what does anybody do with your ammo? And they said, that is a good question. <laughs> I'm not saying having ammo is wrong or anything. I'm not saying any of that. I got my own little supply, right? But the, the point is... How should you and I prepare as Christians? How do we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as people who are fixated, as we've just sung together, fixated on Christ, our Savior, our Deliverer, how do we prepare for the imminent return of Christ? Well, one of the ways in which we prepare is understanding what Peter refers to as the end of all things, right? Again, we hear phrases like the last days or the the end of all things. We need to understand what he means by that. And in its most simplistic form, the end of all things is at hand means this, that Jesus Christ is coming back. And the fact that it is is at hand means his return is what we might refer to as imminent. His return is imminent, meaning that Christ could return at any moment. Now, this can be a little bit confusing for us because this imminent return that that the Scriptures described would, in our minds, probably make us think that this would happen very soon, right? Imminent means it's going to happen really soon. But for the last 2,000 years, we've been in what the Bible refers to as the last days or the end of all things, So 2,000 years does not seem very imminent in my mind and maybe doesn't seem very imminent in your mind. So the question is, what gives? Well, Peter and other biblical writers use the phrase last days or end of days to refer to God's redemptive history. In other words, all the major events that correspond with God's redemptive history have taken place with the exception of one event. I mean you think about it. God created everything, right? He created everything, the universe, everything was that he created was perfect. We see that ultimately if you know your bibles that it didn't take long for sin to corrupt what was once perfect. And everything that was once perfect was now negatively influenced by the corrupting power and enslaving power of sin. And since that time, God has been in the business of redeeming what has been broken, redeeming what has been stolen, redeeming what has been corrupted by the the negative power of sin. And so we see that early on. He calls this man named Abraham. It's Abram And he later becomes Abraham, the father of Israel. He says, I'm going to bless you, and through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And we see that God, in fact, does. He accomplishes. He he carries, he follows through with his his promises. But ultimately, it didn't take long after that promise repeated over and again in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 20, we see that those promises reminded again, but then later we see Israel is enslaved to the Egyptian people, how in the world is God going to influence and bless all the families of the earth when the people of Israel, Abraham's lineage, are enslaved to the Egyptians? Well, guess what? God raises up a deliverer, and his name is Moses. And God uses Moses through a very humbling sort of circumstances to basically call him out and say, now I'm going to take you from the wilderness, and you're going to lead my people to the land that I have promised them. And through a whole series of events, He finally leads them to the doorsteps of the promised land. Because of his own rebellion, he's not able to enter. Joshua leads the people into the promised land, and then you see the cycle repeated over and over again, where God blesses and brings prosperity to his people. But unfortunately, because of prosperity and blessing, what happens is our sinful nature kind of falls away from the Lord. We start to rebel. We start to live for ourselves. God, in his fatherly help, disciplines us, or disciplines his people, And he uses that through usually other nations. And so the the Israelites are taken over by many other nations. And then they finally repent and they come back into right standing with God. And this happens over and over and over and over again. So much so that God finally says through the major prophets, he says, you know what? You're going to be in exile. You're going to live in exile for a very long time. The Babylonians are coming in. And of course, that blows Israel's mind because they don't understand how in the world can God use a pagan nation to accomplish his purposes? And he does, all for his glory. But then comes on the scene, after a very long time, a promise that began back in Genesis chapter 3. We see that God raises up another deliverer, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus has been promised long ago. In fact, he was promised even before the beginning of time. That we see that all that has transpired in history past for thousands of years was all part of God's ultimate purpose to glorify himself and to redeem his people for his glory. And so he sends his son Jesus, why? To die. To die for the sins of the world to take on the necessary payment for our sin to become a curse in our place so that we might be declared righteous and innocent before God. What does Peter say in 1 Peter 3:18? He says, "For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God." So if you were to ask this question, why in the world did Jesus come to bring you to God? And in order to bring you to God, he had to do for you what you could not do for yourself. He had to deal with your sin problem. This disease called sin, this incurable disease called sin, and only Jesus was the remedy for that sin. And he died for you. And he died for me. And he died for the sins of this world. But that's not the end of the story. Because he rose again. We're going to celebrate that in a couple weeks. Jesus didn't stay dead. Because if he stayed dead, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, then we're kind of here for no reason. We, We serve and worship in vain. So we don't worship a dead Savior, we worship a risen Savior. And because Jesus is alive and because He has already gone back to his father, we see in Acts chapter 1 that he's going to come back in the same way that he departed this earth. And so we see ultimately that all of God's redemptive uh, events have taken place except for one event, that Jesus is coming back. Everything else has already transpired. Everything else has been accomplished. And we are here on the verge of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And yes, it does seem like, huh, things seem to be moving and shaking a little bit. Things don't seem to be as normal or predictable or even controllable as, they once, as we once thought they were. You know, Abby C. family, the Bible calls us to be faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. What does it mean to be Faithful. To be faithful means to be loyal and to be steadfast. To be faithful means to to be firm in one's beliefs and constant in one's performance. And one of the ways that you and I as Christ followers show our faithfulness, embody faithfulness at least in part is that we would long for that we would anticipate, that we would yearn for, look forward to the return of Jesus. I've shared it before. Some of you would recognize this. Some of you are new, so you don't know. But my grandpa Bert, he was a man who, I, even as a kid, I did not understand because I was like, I just want to live my life as a kid and experience all kinds of things as maybe a number of you want to do too. But as my grandpa I was always like, I hope that I'm alive when Christ comes back. That's what he wanted. Like, I want to be alive when Christ comes back. Now, God, that was not in God's plans, and I don't think he's complaining right now. He's in the presence of God, so he's doing oh so well. But he longed for the return of Christ. He's like, I want to be gazing into heaven and seeing my Savior come, coming, riding on, riding on the clouds. You know, we sing songs about this. He longed for that. My grandpa Bert was a man of faithfulness. You see, brothers and sisters, what God wants of us, what he wants of his people is that we would long for his return. Not complacent and consumed with this life unnecessarily, not disengaged, but longing for his return. That our savior would come and usher us back into his presence to experience him fully and completely. So I ask this question for the sake of personal reflection. Does this describe you? Are you somebody that genuinely or honestly looks forward to the return of Christ? Would you say that your priorities in life reflect the imminent return of Christ? Do you live as though the trumpet may sound today? The question for us that I want to answer this morning, and I believe that Peter highlights for us in his text, is what does it look like to live as though Christ would come back today or very soon? How then are we called to live how do we utilize or employ our energies in a way that is, we might define as being faithful until Christ comes back? You see, Peter addresses, he, he gives four, he kind of addresses four different topics in our text here this morning. He, really, the ultimate concerns that we ought to be consumed with in light of Christ's imminent return. He talks about our character. He talks about our mutual love for the brethren. He talks about our spiritual service to one another, and he talks about the overarching goal of everything in this life. So let's break that down. Four different uh, points or topics that Peter addresses here. First of all, he talks about our character in light of eternity. Look at verse seven with me once again. Peter says this, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, that's where we pay attention, therefore, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Let me just define what those terms mean from a biblical context here. To be self-controlled in this context means to think soundly. It means to be controlled in both thought and emotion. It means to guard one's mind. It's actually where we get the word sanity. To be self-controlled is to to think sanely, to think maturely. Thinking soundly means, as uh, Wade and Grudem would define, to think about and evaluate situations maturely and correctly. In other words, we don't respond emotionally and quickly jump to conclusions about any given issue or person but instead we carefully and we wisely and we patiently review the facts before any conclusion is made. Just for the sake of practical advice, whenever somebody makes or an assertion or makes a statement about one situation or a, especially a person, the best thing you can do in that conversation is not just think, but actually verbalize, is that really true? Because the fact is, we're emotional creatures that are not always speaking truthfully. And we're not always relaying information truthfully. But it's amazing how many times our perceptions of people Are given to us by someone else's perception of a particular person, and the question, all at this point, is: Is any of this even true in the first place? And yet, how often slander and gossip can repeat itself over and again because we haven't said, "Hold on a second, is this even true?" And how do we know? You see, someone who exercises self-control or thinking maturely and correctly is slow to make conclusions and is is eager to collect the facts before any conclusion is made. Be self-controlled and be sober-minded. To be sober-minded refers to a, a spiritual alertness, to be spiritually observant or to be spiritually watchful and disciplined. Now, Peter's not necessarily, ta- we think of sober and we automatically think of intoxication or something. That's not what Peter's referring to here, though Scripture does have something to say about that. But what Peter's referring to when he says sober-mindedness, he's talking about a spiritual alertness. He's, saying, he's talking about thinking clearly about every circumstance from a spiritual perspective, He's he's talking about not letting our minds wander and what Grudem would say, a mental intoxication that inhibits spiritual alertness. This can include mental laziness, which can so easily lull us into sinful acts and sinful thinking. What do you do when you're, had a long day? Or what do you do when you just have 30 seconds where something's not going on? You pull out your phone, right? That's the best use of your time. Pull out your phone because surely that 30 seconds is best utilized by seeing what extra like you have on your post or how other narcissistic posts are presenting themselves. You get what I'm getting at. How often? How easily? And again, I'm not in and of itself. Social media, movies, entertainment—all those things can be good, or even have a benefit. But we're also we're also feeble people. We're prone to wander, and so often in our in our tired state or in our distracted state. We pull out our phone, and we see what the latest news, app, news highlights are, and we see what the, the latest whatever, whoever's posted whatever, and we start, our mind starts going all over the place. And the question I have for us is, when I look at these things, do I walk away more spiritually alert or more spiritually distracted? Again, I'm not saying you should never look at your phone. What I am saying is, what is the best use of your time? Are we being sober-minded and being alert, knowing that our enemy doesn't work through all, all the time bad things? He oftentimes he works through very good things. We get distracted by even good things. This is why Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew 24 and Matthew 26, he says, be on alert, keep watching. And so he warned, Peter warns us in the like manner, keep on alert, keep watching, be sober-minded. Why? Because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Because the enemy wants to use anything and everything to distract us from the things that matter of eternity. And of course, Peter even offers something even more specific he says be sober minded and self-controlled for the purpose of your prayers the emphasis here is on uh, is, the, is that we might be pray, that we might pray more effectively be self-controlled think clearly think maturely don't be emotionally reactive Be spiritually alert so that your prayers might be prayed effectively. The point is this, you can't pray properly if your mind is clouded by worldly passions. You can't pray the will of God when you are living for your own will. In fact, it's a good practice to think and listen to your own prayers. When you pray, what do you pray for? Is it our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, My kingdom come, my will be done? Or is it thy kingdom come and thy will be done? You see, this is what effective or proper prayer is, that we would pray the will of God. 1 John 5 says this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we will gain or possess and have the requests that we have asked of him. Now you might respond, well, aren't we supposed to bring everything to God in prayer? And the answer is an emphatic yes. But as disciples, as followers of Jesus, he's teaching us to pray, not for our own will, but ultimately for the will of God. This is why Jesus himself even prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Notice these, even, even when we're invited to ask God of anything, it's whatever you ask in my name, it's whatever you ask in my name, That the phrase in my name is all about the will of God being carried out in and through our lives. That's why James says so appropriately in James chapter 4, you do not have because you do not ask, and you do not And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So knowing that Jesus could return any day now, we as his followers must think clearly and think maturely about every situation and every person and be spiritually alert because when we do, it also allows us to express a mutual love for the brethren. Verses eight and nine, Peter says this above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. There's two two exhortations that Peter gives from coming from a, a self-controlled and sober-mindedness for the sake of our prayers. He's like, now we have some practical outworking of this to love earnestly and to show hospitality. This idea for love earnestly, first of all, love is this, uh, in the Greek, the agape love, right? You know, in the Greek, there's multiple words for love. This particular word for love is agape, which means unconditional. Love one another unconditionally. But then he, of course, gives this qualification, Right? Don't just love unconditionally, but love one another unconditionally with great earnest. What does it mean to be earnest or to love earnestly? To love earnestly implies a straining or a stretching, an exertion of maximum effort. Think of like a weightlifter trying to lift their their record, right? They're only going for one rep, hopefully. I I work out at Anytime Fitness, And though I have a different strategy being in my 40s, um, but there are still the 20-year-olds and high schoolers that uh, employ a different strategy that that I once did. And it's all about how much weight can I put on, right? and I get injured at my age doing that, and so I don't do that anymore. But they like to like just, you just stack on the weights, and it's not about going, hey, I'm going to do 10 or 15 reps of this. It's about, I hope to get one, and I have a spotter, and I have two people yelling in my ear going, come on, come on, and they're just exerting everything they got for that one rep. They're lifting earnestly. Actually, the, the, the old Greek and the classical Greek the way they used the same word for earnestly was to, descri- to describe a horse that was stretched out in a full run, like all-out run. Think Hildago or think Seabiscuit, right? You got the, the final, uh, the final lap there, or the final stretch of the final lap, and it's just like, I mean, they're just going, and it's just all out. I just watched Hildago just like last week, basically, and it's just like you got that final scene, right? And they're just racing their neck and neck and right there, and you're just like, I mean, the, it's just... It's just, it's kind of goosebumpy actually. <laughs> they are running earnestly with everything they got. And Peter says this May we love one another unconditionally to this degree. May we love one another unconditionally with everything we got, everything in us, as much as it depends on us. May we be at peace with all men. May we pursue peace and pursue unconditional love. Can you imagine, IBC family, if we pursued one another like this? Can you imagine if we pursued one another with this effort or to this degree? I have no doubt in my mind that it would not eliminate conflict. It would not eliminate disagreement, but I have no doubt in my mind, it would lessen the time between the conflict and the resolution. Because how often do we let things fester because we do not pursue one another with everything we've got? When we do this, we no longer give Satan a foothold. We don't give him a place to reign and rule and destroy. Grudem says this, where love abounds in fellowship, in the fellowship of Christians, many small offenses, even some large ones, are readily overlooked and even forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. But what is the love of God? What is unconditional love? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Unconditional love is not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love never fails; it never ends. Bless you. What must we do as followers of Jesus, knowing that the end of all things are at hand? How must we respond? What must we be concerned with of ultimate concern? be self-controlled, thinking clearly, spiritually alert, loving one another earnestly, and showing hospitality without grumbling. Pastor Tom kind of stole my thunder here a little bit. That little quote you said was out of Poor Richard's Almanac. I think the missionaries stole that. (laughs) No, it's actually great, but uh, Poor Richard's Almanac uh, has a, a a variety of sayings. One of being guests, like fish, stinketh after three days. <laughs> and maybe that's true. Maybe relatives are that way. Maybe whatever it could be that way. But not so for the follower of Christ. Yes, people can wear on us because guess what? The longer they're in our presence, the more they're interfering with our way, our mode our neatly organized life. And yet we are called to be hospitable without grumbling or complaint. Earnest love manifests itself practically by showing hospitality to others as the Lord calls you or leads you to do. I believe that in all its device. Forms and various forms. Hospitality is really the service of welcoming and treating others the way you would want to be treated. It's really about being considerate of others before ourselves. And of course, I, bring, I I appreciate the qualification that Peter places on the service. He says, "Be hospitable, but do so with joy, not with grumbling or complaint, not begrudgingly." And the reason why I believe that Peter gives this qualification is because, well. Oftentimes, the moment in which hospitality is best served is often very inconvenient at the same time. Sometimes we can plan our hospitality, and sometimes hospitality blindsides us, or at least the opportunity for hospitality blindsides us. And then what do we do? I'd love to help. I'd love to serve, but man, my day is busy oh, I'd love to help be hospital in some way, but it drains me so much. And it can be. Let me just say this in regards to hospitality. First of all, hospitality is not an expectation only for those who have the gift of hospitality. Not everybody's a test bodette who makes sure that nobody goes home hungry, but very full and ready for a nap. But we are all called to be hospitable to be considered of the needs of others even before our own needs. Secondly, hospitality. You can't always plan when to be hospitable. Sometimes the need arises when you least expect it. Last weekend, I was overseeing John, uh, Berta MacArthur's memorial and during the, during the eulogy, some of you were there, John MacArthur shared a very powerful story about his wife. One of the stories was, here's Berta Of course, she was very much known for her pie-baking skills. Could have been a spiritual gift, I think. Um, But she was also known for her other baking skills, and it passed on to Scott, I know that. And she baked a whole thing of rolls one day, probably for herself and their family, and yet she felt a prompting from the Lord saying, go across the hallway in this apartment that they had just moved into and give them to your neighbor, She's like, okay. She promptly obeys. She walks across, knocks on the the hallway the the door of the apartment next to her. Someone finally comes to the door. This lady comes to the door. She's like, I have some rules for you. And I don't remember all the introduction, John. You could probably say it better than me, but basically the Lord's called me to give this to you. Here you go. she says, thank you, grabs it, shuts the door. Okay. Walks back across the hallway. Lord, I'm not sure what that's all about. Until the next day, a knock on her door. It's the lady across the hallway. And she says, "I just want to say thank you for coming and giving me those roles." When you knocked, I was literally walking to the bathroom to cut my wrists. But then you came. And I thought, in that moment, someone probably cares. And Berto was able to share that there's a God who cares. You see, you're hot. when the Lord prompts you to being hospitable, even in the most inconvenient of times, it could be the difference between life and death for somebody. You never know. Even as Hebrews 13 says, you might just be hosting an angel without even knowing it. Hospitality can be inconvenient, but as we should always do, because we cannot be providing for the needs of everybody. We can be aware of needs and we may be powerless to do anything about it, but can I just encourage you this, dear family? Ask. Just ask of the Lord. Lord, is this something that I'm supposed to respond to? Perhaps the reason why he makes you aware of it isn't so you're supposed to respond, but you are called to drop to your knees and pray. But you're willing, open-handed. God, what are you calling me to do? Love one another earnestly. Show hospitality without complaint. Thirdly, our spiritual service to one another is another way that we live faithfully in light of Christ's imminent return. Verses 10 and 11a, he sa- Peter says this, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God and whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I do want to just say a couple things uh, up front very clearly. This could be maybe just an invitation for a further conversation. We'll just put it that way. But let me just say this. If you are a follower of Jesus, that means you have the Spirit of God indwelling you. The Spirit of Christ has taken residence in your life. And you know what that also means? It means that you have been supernaturally gifted by the Holy Spirit God, by his spirit, has gifted you. But here's the thing. He does not gift you for your sake. He gifts you for the sake of the church. God gives each of his children a spiritual or multiple spiritual gifts. There's not necessarily just one gift, but multiple spiritual gifts, no doubt. And some more prominent than others. And he gives those for the sake of building up the body of Christ. And let me just say this in regards to spiritual gifts. Though every church is probably striving after this, and IBC is no exception to the rule, we're always desiring that each and every one of you not only recognize your gifting, but that you would have an opportunity to serve in the way that God has gifted you. That doesn't mean you need to necessarily serve on a Sunday morning. That's not what serving out of your giftings technically means, it just means that am I fulfilling the ministry that God has called me to fulfill by his grace, by his empowerment, and by the way he has gifted me? Whether it be on a Sunday morning or another ministry or whatever it may be, am I being faithful to live and serve out of the way he has gifted me for the sake of building up the body of Christ, and as we will see in a second, for the sake of bringing glory to our heavenly Father. And so I say that more as an invitation. If you don't know where well, you're gifted, we'd we'll love to talk. Because there's no greater joy than serving in the way that God has wired you. It's, in a sense, it becomes easy. Not because it doesn't drain you physically, but you're, you can be spiritually pumped. You're like, man, this is incredibly exhausting and incredibly amazing at the same time because it's just who you are. I gotta say, I love watching some of you serve. You, you, you shine brightly because you're serving and building up this body, this family. You're building up the church in the way that God has gifted you. And I love the fact that every Wednesday we have prayer warriors coming here, Terry Root right there, coming here and praying for You. And praying for the church in PA and praying that God's redemptive purpose would be accomplished through His church here. I love it. I'm so thankful for it. I pray that we would all join hands, link arms together for that common goal and purpose. Fourth and finally, what is the overarching goal? The overarching goal in everything we do is to glorify God. So that in everything, verse 11 says, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10.31? Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, what does he say? Do all for the glory of God. I don't know if you recognize it or not, but when you walk into the foyer, or at least when you leave here, there's a statement on the wall that says, our vision, and our vision is to, to glorify God in all things and to delight in Him. Why in the world would that be our vision? What does that even mean? I'm not going to go into it right now because there's a sermon you can come point back to a little bit earlier, and I, I kind of unpack that more fully. But let me just say this. First of all, that's why we were created. God created you so that you might bring glory to himself, that you might reflect him more fully. What does David say in Psalm 16? He says, I have set the Lord always before me. And the point of that is, he said, therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. In other words, what David is describing here is saying: when I set the Lord always before me, when I live for the glory of God, and when I live to make His name famous, my joy is inextricably—I can't even say that word—is inseparably linked to our joy. Living for God's glory brings me the fullest joy in life. We all want to be happy. We all want to experience joy. It's kind of an an innate need we all desire and we pursue at whatever cost. And God is saying, my joy is full in you when you live for my glory. When you live for purposes beyond yourself, higher than yourself, higher than your will. When you live for the will of God being carried out through your life. So how should we, as followers of Jesus, live in light of Christ's imminent return? Let me summarize in this way. We must think clearly and think maturely. We must be spiritually alert at all times so that we might pray effectively. Peter also says that we must love one another unconditionally with an earnest that is described as in giving everything we've got. We must be ready to show hospitality at the moment the Holy Spirit prompts us. We must understand that God has gifted you for a reason. He's gifted you on purpose and for a purpose to serve others and to build his church. And when it's all said and done, may everything we do be done for the purpose of directing all our attention and all our praise onto our Father. That's how we prepare when all things are at hand. That's how we prepare for the imminent return of Christ. You see, Jesus himself lived for the glory of his Father. He lived for the glory of his father and he lived to fulfill the will of his father. In John 12, Jesus says, my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But he goes on to conclude, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice comes from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. What does Jesus say in John 17? He prays to his father, the high priestly prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I have glorified you on earth. I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I have had with you before the world existed. Here's the deal. The ultimate act of bringing glory to the father was for Jesus to die so that you and I could live. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And his death resulted in life for you and for me and is made available to all who would call on the name of the Lord. So we get to celebrate him again. Week in and week out draw focus to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ Because you see, in God's redemptive purposes, we've already said, all these events have taken place except for one. But the climax of human history was the the cross of Jesus. That's the culmination of human history. And now God is wrapping all things up and one day he's coming back. And so we take the bread as a way of constant remembrance. We take this bread and we eat this as a way of saying thank you and drawing focus and remembering the body of Christ, which was given so freely for you and for me. And may I just say this up front, communion or the Lord's Supper is only for believers. This is not for anybody. This is not an extra dose of grace upon you. This doesn't give you credit for heaven. This is for believers who have already identified with their savior, Jesus Christ, who've said yes to Christ, who are following Christ, not perfectly, but persistently. It's for us. It draws us into a remembering grace. And so as Christians, we eat this bread in remembrance of the body of Christ. Let us eat together. In the same way, we drink this cup as a way of remembrance. We take time to remember and give thanks for what Christ has done for us. This cup represents the blood of Jesus, which was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. It cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It declares us innocent before God. We stand guilt-free because of what Jesus did on our behalf. And so we drink as a way of saying thank you and remembering. Let's drink together, church family. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your goodness to us. Jesus, we're so grateful that you do not call us to a standard that you have not yet first modeled to us. You don't tell us to do something that you haven't already done as a way of following you, following in your footsteps. And we're so grateful for the fact that in the midst of everything going on in our lives, and as the world seems to get more and more volatile, Father, you call us to look up. You call us to a place of listening. You call us to hear your voice and to see your perspective on all things. And I just pray, Heavenly Father, that you would empower us by your spirit to to live faithfully, to prepare rightly, to be ready appropriately for your imminent return. May we be a people that longs for your return. And because of that certain reality, Father, may it influence our lives even today that each day we would live with the anticipation that this could be our last. May we keep short accounts with one another. May we love earnestly. May we please you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.